Hello and greetings, and welcome to the New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. My name's Ethan. Very glad that you've joined us, and glad that you have an interest in considering what God has made known through the author to the letter to the Hebrews. We pick up in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God commits. The Hebrews author is in the middle of a hard stop, the hardest stop that he's had so far in his letter. He has, in chapter 5, kind of made the great thesis statement of his sustained argument that he's been making since the beginning, that Jesus is God, Jesus is man, and thus Jesus is in this unique and appropriate position to be the ideal high priest. And he's associating this with this priesthood of Melchizedek that can be seen in Psalm 110. And he wants them to understand something about this priesthood so that they can uh, walk appropriately in faith at this time in their life. But in chapter 5, verse 11, we had this hard stop where he says that you will, we have a lot to say about these things. And he will, in fact, in the beginning of chapter 7, talk about these things more. But he says that they have become dull or sluggish of hearing. They should be teachers by this time, but they need someone to again teach them the uh, basic principles of, of the oracles of God. That they need milk, not solid food. Uh, that solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice distinguish good from evil. And so that's why he's saying we need to le- they need to leave that elementary doctrine uh, and um, to go on to maturity, to go on to this fullness, uh, having reached the goal, but really maturity, this development in faith. And in verse 3, that is what... Uh, he plans on doing this. We will do if God permits is not you know laying this foundation, uh, but instead to have this uh, conversation uh, that helps to press on toward maturity. And so again, we want to emphasize, as we emphasized last time, uh, that the goal here for the Hebrews author is this maturity. That the Hebrews author has this, this very acute concern about his audience. Uh, we've said that his audience are Christians who that they are um, commended for the good work they have done in the past. In chapter 10, they're commended for having stood firm in their faith. There are been Christians long enough, we saw in me, of chapter 5, that they should already be teachers. So they've been Christians for some time. And so we have this very strange thing going on here where he says, you need to be taught of these elementary doctrines again, but we need to press on to maturity. And so how can he press on to maturity, and yet they need this basic instruction again? And perhaps a way out, so to speak, of this, of this conundrum is to remember uh, the, the statement Jesus will make in the parable of the talents and other places, that to the one who has shall more be given, but to, to the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Um, which kind of seems strange, just because if somebody doesn't have, how can what they have be taken away? But the idea is, um, in parable of the talents, of course, that the one talent, from the one talent servant is given to the servant who had at this point 10 talents and that just seems outrageous you know how can that be you know how is that fair or just but the point that Jesus wants to make there I think is the same thing going on here with the Hebrews author that there is this expectation that you're either growing or you're fading away that you can't just decide to stay in one place and that's going to work that you need to constantly grow develop mature to develop your faith, to live the faith. And again, 
This is not just kind of a bookish, let's spend time reading and learning intellectually. Uh, he's just said that maturity is the having one's powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So it is in the doing of Christianity. He's concerned that his audience has reached this point where they feel like they've heard it all a thousand times, that they know it. And so even what they know, they're losing their grasp on because they're not living it. And they're not pursuing with excellence and with passion the ways of Jesus. Um, very interesting to see that this is the great danger and concern uh, that really uh, really animates the Hebrews author here. And so he wants them to press on to this maturity, to obtain uh, and to continue to obtain this great wealth in Jesus. Before he uh, continues on with his concern, this list of uh, elementary doctrinal principles. Uh, this foundation that should be laid upon which everything else will be built. Uh, dead Repentance from dead works. Um, faith toward God. Instruction about washings or baptisms. Laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment. And if we were going to make a list of the essentials of the faith, it may not look exactly like this. We should not assume or presume that the Hebrews author is providing us with an exhaustive list here. But we have principles that definitely, when you look at it, do kind of orient more toward a Jewish Christian kind of concern and issue. Uh, repentance from dead works, we can kind of see that, perhaps the works of the law, kind of Romans and Galatians. Uh, but of course, any kind of work outside of Jesus is a dead work. Apart from me, you can do nothing in John 15. Uh, faith toward God, uh, the whole concept of, of having trust in God, because God is faithful, and what it means to have faith, and the core fundamentals of faith. Uh, instruction about washings, the baptism. Is, the reason washings in English standard is because uh, the idea that it has reference uniquely to immersion in Christ is would be odd considering that it's in the plural. Normally it's not in the plural like this. Uh, therefore it is believed that this is referring to you know the washings under the law, the perhaps even immersion in, of John, which is something that would definitely be on the mind if the Hebrews author is indeed Apollos, since he spent his time as a disciple of John and of the fact that there is also the immersion in Jesus. And so maybe the plural is kind of having a reference to all such things. Laying on of hands, we generally associate with, um, for instance, like in Acts 8, with the transfer of the Spirit. But the, the laying on of hands is just kind of a, an act of commission, a kind of uh, an ordination is, is, is a very good word to use about that. In Acts 13, the people of Antioch uh, laid hands on Paul and Barnabas to send them off to do the work the Spirit had called them to do in preaching to the Galatians. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul warns Timothy not lay hands on anybody too hastily lest he share in their sins. Uh, so we see that laying on hands is a way to commit people to a certain task or a certain responsibility, um, which would also maybe include, you know, at that time, the giving of the gifts to, to uh, proclaim and prophesy and things of that nature. Resurrection of the dead here, mentioned as a fundamental idea, uh, especially coming out of Second Temple Judaism, uh, the, and the eternal judgment. Uh, we would might think eternal judgment is not a fundamental doctrine because of all the arguments and disputations about what's going on with the picture uh, of eschatology and things of that nature, but uh, the fact that Jesus is coming again and will judge the world. Uh, is one of those core fundamental concepts that is preached continually, especially among the Gentiles. Uh, the idea of a judgment that there will be a, 
everything that you're doing will have consequences. A very important part of that message. And so again, does this mean for certain that it's a Jewish Christian audience? I mean, it's certainly going to have Jewish Christians in the audience. Uh, Even in a mixed church of Jewish and Gentile people, you would still probably have some of these issues because of the influence coming out of Judaism and the Old Testament. So it's, it's not definitive to tell us about the audience, but it's something we need to keep in mind, understand why these are the elementary doctrines. And the reason they're listed is not so we sit and pit, nitpick and argue them for forever and ever, uh, but type of things upon which the Hebrews are, audience is supposed to build their faith. Remember, a foundation is only good if the foundation has something built upon it. The foundation is important because a, you know, a foundation not well founded, not well built, is going to lead to great uh, disruption, and the integrity of the structure that will be built upon it is going to be compromised. So it's not to say that the fundamental uh, basis of the faith and the foundational understanding of the faith is unimportant, but it's not enough. And that's been the Hebrews' author's whole point here. It's not enough, and that leads to this great warning that he now gives in verses four uh, through nine, four through eight. Excuse me that it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. In This passage is so easily decontextualized as a way to say, hey, look, a person can become a Christian and fall away. And there are valid uses of that in that kind of proof texted form. But I want to make sure that we really look at context. Uh, as we noted, there's been the sustained argument that the Hebrews author has been making that kind of reached that crescendo there in verses uh, 7 through 10 of Hebrews 5, where we've identified Jesus as the high priest in the Earl of Melchizedek and what that means. And that we're going to spend a lot more time elaborating on that in chapter 7 through most of 10. But there's also been these exhortations. And I'd like to suggest that we're doing the same thing here, that we're reaching crescendo with those uh, exhortations. The first one in chapter 2, that if the law delivered by angels had firm consequence, and notice that he's focusing not on the blessings, not that he's denying that, but on the consequence, that the it was obedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And of course, what is the bracketed thing that you would escape? How would we escape condemnation if we neglect such a great salvation? The next one in chapters 3 and 4, based upon Psalm 95. And of course, the whole point of Psalm 95 is warning future generations of the people of God to not be rebellious against God the way the generation in the wilderness rebelled against God. Because they rebelled against God, they died in the wilderness, they did not enter his rest. And so the Hebrews author is concerned. Make sure that you don't have anyone with an evil, unbelieving heart that's uh, being deceived here uh, and being hardened here, uh, but to exhort one another uh, every single day. Otherwise, you will be found disobedient and you will not enter the rest. That's why it's so important for you to work to enter that rest. To understand the word of God is pointed and it's going to uh, convict you and that you are exposed to God and cannot hide from him. And so now we're getting to this exhortation that if you have been in this condition, that you have um, been enlightened 
enlightened here will eventually mean uh, used in early Christian discourse to explain the conversion, especially baptism. That that's the point. We will talk about, well, I got baptized. They would talk about, that was the point I was enlightened about Jesus. We can't be sure if that's the technical use of the term here, uh, but the Hebrews author certainly would not be dis- would not disagree with that use. How's that? And so we can look at it that enlightenment, that recognition of who Jesus is, uh, and has um, tasted the heavenly gift, the heavenly gift uh, certainly salvation, relational unity with God in Christ, uh, could also refer to some of the hardismata, speaking in tongues, things of that nature, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. And again, that's also could have some reference to the gifts of the Spirit, but also just the unity of the Spirit, the bond of the Spirit, the uh, relationship within the Spirit that is seen throughout the New Testament, that Christianity is done in Christ, but in and through the Spirit. And have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They, they are aware that the Word of God is good. They have learned the Word of God. And they have tasted uh, of the powers of the age to come. That they have, maybe this is where this, their spiritual gifts are. Hey, you can see spiritual gifts in many of these things if you want to. Or if nothing else, that they have just shared in the life of God in Christ. And they have experienced that life and felt that life and understood that life that God is trying to, uh, to, to accomplish in, in, in Christ and in his people. And so these, the point of all this, of course, these, these are not neophytes. These are not newly converted people. These are not uh, Christians who have only been around a little bit or who were never that faithful anyway. These are people who would be recognized as devoted disciples of Jesus. And of course, we're supposed to see in them the audience of the Hebrews author. The Hebrews author is not writing this for, for funsies. He's writing because he is concerned about the people in front of him. And so these are the people in front of him. They are those who've been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come. And so what will happen to them if they fall away? If they turn from God at this juncture? And that's the Hebrews author's concern. And it's so important that we locate that concern there because this passage has been difficult. This passage has been very, very difficult because it seems very much at odds with the entire tenor of the New Testament because it says it is impossible to restore them to repentance. And he explains why. They've they've re-crucified the Son of God. I mean, it really is uh, to crucify again. Uh, to and to hold him up to contempt because uh, they have embodied him and now they have turned from him. And of course, the the it, it's also kind of a low level anxiety that that we approach this passage because you're saying that I can be a Christian for a long time, and if I if if I just turn away, then there's no way I can come back, and that that's very uh, anxiety inducing. It's it's a very fearful thing to have to consider in prospect. Um. If we were to use this as a general idea, you only can continue in the faith, you can't sin and then repent and be restored, we're probably going beyond the point of the Hebrews author. The Hebrews author is not going to suggest that, uh, against the grain of everything else, that there is no repentance possible for anyone once they become a Christian. That's, that is a way the pastor is taken. And, 
you see this in in early Christendom and Tertullian will talk about how you know once you're a Christian you know you don't get to uh, repent of sins anymore. If you're baptized and you sin, that you're lost. Uh, you'll see later people say, all right, you get one major sin you can repent of. Uh, but that's it. Once you've done that one penance, you can't keep doing it. Uh, the Donatists are, are a whole group that will arise in the 4th century uh, because they will not receive back anyone who denied Jesus in the midst, in the, during the persecutions. Uh, because uh, and, and then you have Augustine arguing against them. And so you had this tension throughout the history of Christendom, where you've got, uh, do we welcome back people who have sinned, and how? And um, that, and this passage has been marshaled in that argument frequently. Uh, we see the parable of the prodigal son. We see um, calls that others can be uh, in repentance. Mean, even Simon the sorcerer, you know. Uh, he, he's in the danger at this point and yet Peter says that you know that he needs to repent and he can he needs to change and so easy for those uh, among the Protestants to really want to dismiss this passage because of course it does not go along with the kind of once saved always saved framework that is consistent in a lot of forms of Protestantism um, but when, when we understand it contextually we can see what's going on here especially when we see the explanation where the Hebrews author goes to this idea of the land that has received rain should produce a crop, but if it produces thorns and thistles, it's worthless and to be uh, near to being cursed and it's end to be burned. And of course, we go back to Genesis 3. What's the curse? That you would get thistles and thorns out of the ground. Throughout the prophets, unproductive land produces thistles and thorns and uh, the lack of productivity there. Uh, it's only good to be burned. And so the idea is that if you are uh, turning away from God, uh, you're you've received all these blessings and there's no fruit, and it's just good to be. It's all that's left is to be burned. He's he's concerned about his audience. He's putting this warning in their minds. He in verse nine we're going to see uh, in our next uh, conversation is no, see, but we're we're convinced of better things for you. He's going to really walk back, and this is where you can see the rhetorical strategy. He said, uh, "You are hard of hearing, sluggish of hearing." Uh, trying to really goad his audience, saying you should be teachers and you need this basic doctrine stuff. And they're going to say, well, yeah, right. Well, they're going to try to prove him wrong now. He said, we're not going to build this foundation of the basic stuff. We're going to go on to maturity. And he said, okay, great. And now he provides this warning that you, if you fall away now, you will not be able to be restored to repentance. And that's to really just cut them to the heart, to be like, to talk about the seriousness of this. And then he's going to pick up, we're, we're convinced of better things for you, so that he can kind of reestablish his rapport with his audience before he goes on to really talk about it. And so what he's doing here is providing this detailed warning. And this is a very important for Christians who have been Christians for a while, because this is this the idea. If you've been a Christian, if you have had the testimony, if you have embodied Jesus in your life, you've gone to a swing in your faith, and you then turn away, there's no hope for you. There's no hope for you because if you have lived the Christian life, you've been gone through and seen what Jesus is all about, if you are able to teach others, if you are the Christian of Christians there, so to speak, but you grow weary and fall away, there's no hope. Because you you have found Christianity wanting in your own life because you have re-crucified him to, and, and held him up to shame and disgrace and contempt and there's no turning back from that. And that's probably uh, then a theoretical. And what we mean by that is it's, that it's in practice that, that it, 
that if somebody were could theoretically turn back from that, if they were to realize what they've done and, and could turn around, you know, based upon the, the premise that Ezekiel gives us in Ezekiel 18 and the, and the emphasis of repentance throughout the whole text, we certainly would have the belief that God would take them back. But practically, that's just not the way that it's going to happen. And it's a very specific concern for that audience where they're at. And it's interestingly mirrored in, in Revelation 2 when it comes to the concern about Ephesus, where the Ephesians have stood for the faith, but they have left their first love. And Jesus tells them, if you do not repent, I'm going to remove your candlestick. He doesn't say that about the other churches of all these other sins, right? You'd think that Thyatira or Sardis, or especially Laodicea's candlestick would be in danger. And perhaps they were, but it's not mentioned. It's Ephesus that's in danger that they've lost that feeling, they've lost that passion, they've lost that zeal, they've grown weary. And if Ephesus, of course, if they did not listen and they did not change, they would have had their candlestick removed. And if their candlestick's removed, there's there's no hope of having standing again before Jesus. And so that's the concern that we need to take from this. Uh, maybe to come off the precipice of, if I fall away, can I ever be restored again? Uh, and much more toward... If you are a Christian and you have grown weary because you have been doing this for a long time and you're falling prey to the pressures of conforming to society, realize that if you do step away, you're not coming back. And if you're not coming back, you're losing out on all that you've worked for. You're losing out on all that God has done for you. And beyond all of that, you're holding Jesus to contempt and open shame. And it's not going to go well for you at judgment. And the Hebrews author is pointing this out at every point in his exhortation. And it's something, especially for us who've been Christians for a while, really need to sit in and really need to listen to. Thank you again for participating. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. And may the Lord bless and keep you until then.